Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast by Skiff Meetings, the podcast for curious event professionals. I am Andrea Doyle, Senior Editor, and in this episode, I chat with Al Hutchinson, President and CEO of Visit Baltimore and Chair of Destinations International. Our conversation was an important one as we discussed diversity and inclusion in the industry, what it is like being only the second African-American chair of Destinations International in its 108-year history, the importance of getting the local community vested in a destination, the overturning of Roe versus Wade and how that impacts meetings and conventions, gun violence, and staffing issues. The mantra that guides him, a quote by coach Nick Saban from Alabama, be where your feet are, which means stay in the moment. Although we talked about really serious issues, Al's magnetic personality shines through this interview. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Thank you, Andrea. Al Hutchinson here, President and CEO at Visit Baltimore. Um, so, so excited to be talking with you today. Uh, some critical issues we need to be dealing with in the travel space. Mm -hmm. But I'm excited because I've been in this industry now 30 years. I started in a, by a blind newspaper ad in the local Richmond Time Dispatch newspaper, the city that I lived in. I knew nothing about this industry, had no training in it. Uh, I got my training from Xerox uh, in, in the sales um, arena, first job out of college, and uh, saw a blonde ad, responded. It was a Richmond CVB sales manager job, and the CEO there took an interest in me, uh, hired me, and, um, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> I went, this is my sixth city now. I started off in Richmond, but... Charlotte, Pittsburgh, Virginia Beach, uh, Mobile, Alabama, um, and now Baltimore. After six years here in Baltimore, I fell in love with the industry, really um, sort of worked on my my skill and um, just grew and wanted to go to the, to the next job and to grow myself in the industry. And um, it's my second president CEO job, but... It's been a really good career track for me, and hopefully I've made a, a little contribution to the industry. I think you made a, a more than a little contribution. Can you share your journey that brought you to the top of Visit Baltimore? And then maybe even if you could talk about your involvement with um, Destinations International. Absolutely. So um, I had spent 13 years in Virginia Beach as the vice president of sales and marketing. And there was a president and CEO job that came available in Mobile, Alabama. And um, 
I took an interest in the position. Uh, didn't know that I would be moving to Mobile, but um, I was hired to lead their their team, and so that was my entree as a president and CEO there. Went went to Mobile. I went to college at the University of Alabama, so that was my only experience in the state as a student, and uh, hadn't been back in what thirty years. Huh. And so um, they took a chance on me, and I was there for two and a half years. Had some success. Uh, we did a rebrand for Mobile, changed the name to Visit Mobile. Um, went through a branding process where they landed on Born to Celebrate because of Mardi Gras. Um, they wanted to celebrate festivals and celebrate people. But then uh, the opportunity in Baltimore came available. Um, I'm an East Coast guy, grew up in Virginia. Uh, you know, it just made sense to a larger destination. Um, and I did not know if I would get this opportunity, but went through the process. And the board um, that was going through the search um, they made me an uh, offer to come back to the East Coast, which I was very excited about. So, you know, and because of the experience in Baltimore, I've had a bigger platform. Obviously, COVID had a lot to do with that. And But uh, because of what we've been able to do at Visit Baltimore, and I've been on the board of Destination International now for about six years, um, the leadership there had put me in position to um, become the chair of the of the board, and I assumed that position July of this year. Uh, only the second African American in the 108 year old history wow. of uh, Destination International to be the chair of the board. And so, you know, Melvin Tennant, CEO in, in, in Minneapolis, was the first, and so he was a pioneer. So grateful to Melvin's leadership, and mm -hmm. but now being in the the chair's role here. Very, very excited about it, of what we can do collectively as an industry. We have a lot of work to do, as all of us are trying to reopen after uh, the pandemic of our lifetime. But I'm, uh, I'm humbled by it, but really looking forward to leading uh, the destinations across the world, quite frankly. And it's more important than ever for a destination to tell an authentic story and also for organizations like you to help market, like the role of a destination marketing organization seems to have changed. Can you explain why you think that's the case? Yeah, that's a great question. And it has changed. It used to be that as a destination, DMO, CVB, that as long as you were bringing a, the next convention to your city, that you were doing a pretty good job. You were filling up hotels, booking your convention center if you have one, Folks are coming in, going to your restaurants. That was a really, really good deal. But as things have changed and, and uh, city budgets have gotten tighter, now they're, the ask is different now. And the ask of DMOs is to, how can you partner more with the city government, uh, the counties, the mayors, the, the, the county executives to do more to help uh, the quality of life in your community? So I think now the focus has really switched, whereas a DMO leader, you need to figure out how do you partner with your number one customer, which are your local residents, quite frankly. And I know here in Baltimore, um, we've made a concerted effort to really partner with residents in all of Baltimore, not just folks who work and live in the central business district, where most of our convention product is located. 
And I think really the new challenge is how do you take your messaging about the value of travel and tourism out to your local communities? And how do you develop those collaborations, identify key people in these neighborhoods that can help you tell the story about their neighborhood, whether they own a small coffee shop, a bookstore, a candle making shop, a craft beer um, establishment, all of those folks live in your communities. Most of them have homes there. They they work and send their kids to college. So there should be the voices of what you're trying to celebrate in your community. So now um, I think communities who are doing it the right way and DMOs who are doing it the right way are really creating these really authentic relationships uh, with your stakeholders. You know, in 2019, our city, we went through a rebranding. And when we went through that process, we actually interviewed over 200 people from all walks of life, uh, black, white, gay, straight, um, faith-based industry, sports enthusiasts, community leaders. And we wanted to really see, as we went through this rebrand, how did they see Baltimore? And how did they feel they would want us to tell the story about Baltimore? And so that was very important to us. And we went through about a a 12-month, 18-month process. And where we landed, our new brand is Baltimore. It's Baltimore faces, Baltimore voices. It's the makers, the creatives, the influencers here in Baltimore, the artists. Um, they're part of our storytelling now. And the, the real significance of that was prior to this rebrand, they weren't a part of our storytelling. And so I believe moving forward, you're going to see more communities that are partnering with uh these great storytellers in our neighborhoods and our communities to help us elevate our messaging. So it's like you get the whole community to be part of your marketing team. Absolutely. And I really believe that the communities who will be doing the really good work moving forward are going to be those who have these uh, diverse voices of their communities, helping them with their storytelling. And we approach our work in, in Baltimore, visit Baltimore from a storytelling platform. We believe that's what we do best. We should be the um, the chief storytellers of Baltimore. And we can't do it by ourselves. Um, we want to bring other folks who, who live in our community, who have businesses in our community, help us to elevate the story. We believe if we do that effectively, then we develop what I call more evangelists. Um, so folks in our neighborhoods, they're cheerleaders for Visit Baltimore. They're cheerleaders for the city of Baltimore. And so we're adding every day. We want to add more evangelists to help us to elevate the great story of Baltimore. Wow. And I know you don't just talk the talk. You walk the walk. And I've um, gone to the trade shows where you have all your local makers have stuff in your booth. And I've always been so impressed by that. Well, you're too kind. And that's really been effective for us. And I'll give you a really good example. Just this past October at IMAX in Las Vegas, we took uh, one of the owners of our local oyster company and we took an owner of one of our local wine purveyors to the trade show. We did the same actually at ASAE in, in Nashville and folks came by. They were able to taste oysters that were raised in Southern Maryland. They could uh, pair that with great wine. Um, that we bought in from Baltimore, and we had lines of people <laughs> wrapped around the trade show floor waiting to 
get a sample of those Merlin oysters. So we just think it's important. They meet the owners of these companies. These folks can help us to tell the great story of Baltimore and the state of Maryland. Um, and that's that's going to be really our, our mantra moving forward as we go to trade shows. How can we celebrate Baltimore in a very authentic way? So like you're explaining that it's important for a DMO to help, of course, market a destination. But more than ever, I feel like DMOs are part of political decisions, especially with the Roe versus Wade overturn. Um, can you explain how you see DMOs working in that realm? Well, uh, let me first say that um, be because of the federal legislation that's coming down the pike and Roe v. Wade is sort of the the, the first, it, it makes our jobs extremely complicated. Mm. Um, but we have to be very thoughtful and we have to see how do we partner and listen to our industry? Because quite frankly, a lot of these decisions will impact the way a lot of our association groups makes this decisions on where they take their, their business. And so what we've been attempting to do, and I've really been one of the leaders in this as the chair of Destination International, we're having conversations with organizations like ASAE, um, talking with them and talking to their leadership because uh, these groups have uh, anti-discrimination clauses in a lot of their agreements. Mm -hmm. And we have states, unfortunately, from a political standpoint, you have the red states, blue states. And it's sad that we're at that place now um, from just an ideology perspective, but we are. So the question is, as a DMO, how do we partner and have conversations more broadly with our stakeholder community? In this case, a lot of the associations try to understand um, what their missions are, where some of their pushbacks are on some of these federal delegations. We do not want to, and this is the Destination International's position, we do not want to penalize or weaponize any community because of some of this um, decision-making. And unfortunately, a lot of it's coming from the federal level, and because it comes federal, then the states take it on, and you're penalizing a lot of the folks who work in these communities who had nothing to do with these federal decisions. So we, I just believe we, we need to have conversations now about uh, where we go. Uh, again, Roe v. Wade is the, the hot topic right now. Um, and we're, we're at the table, which is great. And we want to let our stakeholders know that we want to be thoughtful in these decisions. We want to make sure we're uh, having real inclusive conversations. And we, we know that um, these are really serious decisions that people are making. But at the end of the day, we're hopeful that we can make it make these decisions in a very thoughtful way, that we don't penalize people who work hard in these communities, but at the same time, invite this, the associations to our communities and ask them to help us change some of these policies that they may not be in agreement with. So we believe it's more valuable to come meet in these communities Get you in front of governors, get you in front of some of the state leaders, some of the federal leaders, and have a broader conversation. And if there are some policies that you don't agree with, let's see if we can change it that way. Change the voting or raise money to maybe um, create political action groups, if you will, that can help uh, change policy. But we want to, I think there's an opportunity for us to fight policies in a different way. 
go to the cities, meet, convene, have conversations, as opposed to not meeting in those communities and really penalizing people who uh, had nothing to do with these decisions. So then you feel boycotting isn't the way. Well, I, I think, look, boycotting um, has some value. So I'm never going to say um, rule boycotting out. But I believe that the way we are now politically in the United States, we're a very divided country. We're almost 50 50. Wow. So because of that, I think we need to approach it in a different way. Number one, I think we need to have a broader conversation. Number two, a lot of the federal federal decisions are being made by six of the nine people in the Supreme Court right. and 50 state senators. They're making decisions for over 300 million people. Right. And when you look at those data points, that's when I feel it doesn't the value is not boycotting because we have such a few number of people who are making decisions for the masses. So let's have a broader conversation, a much more intelligent conversation, and see if we can make change based on common sense and on people and have these more of these face-to-face -face conversations as compared to reactionary conversations. Because I, I just think we're in a we're in a tough place when we allow six Supreme Court justices and 50 senators to make these major decisions for 300 plus million people. That's insanity. Right. I do agree. Um, can we talk about the issue of race? Um, in 2020, after George Floyd's murder, you were part of an open letter that was writ written reflecting on systemic racism in the industry. Um, can you explain why you felt it important to write that letter? And in your opinion, have things improved since then? Yeah, so, wow, it's interesting. You know, you bring up George Floyd and, you know, summer of 2020. It seems like so long ago, right? Uh, because of everything we've been dealing with for COVID. But, you know, only, what, two years ago. And... What happened, all of us were at home because of COVID, and we were able to really witness, uh, I'll call it a murder, right in front of our eyes. And it happened to be of an African-American gentleman at the hands of, you know, police officers who primarily were white police officers. Um, this kind of uh, activity has happened in the past in the U.S., but this particular moment in time, we all saw it. And so... When, once that happened, a group of about eight African-American men in the GMO space, we had been talking regularly during the pandemic, just using it as almost like therapy session for us. How do we, how do we deal with what's going on with the pandemic? We're trying to run companies, run cities. How do we do it? And then we witnessed what we saw. And that had a real big impact on the eight of us. Um, being black men in the United States. And we all had committed a lot of time in this industry. We served on committees. We served on boards. We're, you know, senior leaders in the space. And we're like, well, can, what can we do? Can we use our voices? Can we use our positions? Can we use our experience to maybe make a statement? And so this was very, this was done very organically. We said, well, let's come together Let's uh, let's pen a letter. 
and we partnered with um, uh, a gentleman that all of us uh, know, um, you know, Sal and Gloria Herbert uh, from Black uh, Travel, and we asked them to help partner with us to put a pen to paper and sort of express some of our views. We did a video as well. Um, and we really made that statement to just try to help to elevate the issue, encourage our white counterparts and friends to come together and have a, a bigger conversation. And I think as a result of that letter being done very authentically and very organically, and we did it in a space of love, quite frankly. And I think that drew a lot of our white counterparts um, from a number of associations, a number of, of groups to really listen to the conversation. And we started to have more and more dialogue, more communication. So the question is, are we better today in December of 22 than we were then? I think we've come a long ways because we are, we've had more conversations, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Um, I think, you know, one of the things now through Destination International under my chairmanship, we've created for the very first time a historically black college and university scholarship fund. And I don't know if prior to what happened with George Floyd, if we would have gotten to this place that quickly. So there are a number of conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion in most organizations now. That's a good thing. So we are beginning to talk. I think there's some action happening, i.e. the HBCU scholarship program. And um, we are better, but the reality is we have much, much more to do. Um, we don't want to lose sight of it. And what I'm concerned about, especially in the DEI space, is that I don't want some people to say, we've done what we've done all we need to do. That's over. We don't need to focus on DEI anymore. We've done it. We've dealt with it. We've hired somebody to focus on it. We've put some agendas in place. Now the time's to move on. I think that's the worst thing we can do at this point because this is a human conversation. We're still not where we need to be. We're not, not perfect. So let's continue to talk, but let's continue to put some action and some resources to change in the conversation. But it's not just something to check off a list. No, because again, hey, the reality is this is an issue we've been talking about for over 400 years. So, you know, when you look, and that's just from the racial perspective, but when you add in women issues, when you add in LGBTQ plus issues, it's a broader piece. And so it can't be a check the box. Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about human issues that it's going to be a lifetime. And we should never think that because we've created a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative, or we've hired someone to drive that, that we've arrived to the promised land. That's not true. You have to keep working every day to get better, to make your organizations better, to make your neighborhoods better, and quite frankly, to make yourself better, because that's where it should start. How do you become a better human? Right. 
Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. Another hot button topic. I mean, of course, that's so important. And I also think gun violence in this country is horrific. And um, I attended DI's conference in Toronto. And really, I thought your session about gun violence and the role a destination marketing organization can take in it was pretty, it was so impressive and so powerful. How important is gun reform to this industry? And what do you think the industry can do to help? Well, I think this is another one of those topics you mentioned earlier that uh, probably two, three years ago, as a DMO, we wouldn't even be talking about. Right. Um, But now it's so pervasive, not only in the United States, but across the globe of of gun violence. Um, And now it's not just impacting urban hubs like Baltimore or New York or D.C. or Los Angeles. It's now in rural America. And so it's something that we have to talk about as an industry because it does have an economic component to it that if you have in this a gun violence in your, com- your community and then you're beginning to create an environment that people don't feel comfortable coming to see you, that's lost revenue that's in your community. They will go somewhere else. But the challenge right now in America is Gun violence is everywhere. If you think about three gentlemen that were killed at the University of Virginia football players recently, or you go to Chesapeake, Virginia, the Walmart uh, manager who killed six people. Chesapeake, Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia, that's rural America. Mm -hmm. Um, And so gun violence is something that we need to have a deeper conversation about. Um, I do believe... We need to come up with some kind of some type of gun reform in this country because it's um, it's destroying us as humans. And I am not convinced that any citizen should be able to go and purchase an assault rifle, uh, a semi-automatic rifle. I don't understand why we can't get to a place there. And when you see what's happened in Sandy Hook with all these young folks shot down in front of us, there's got to be something in our humanity that says to us, there has to be a better way for us to approach this and do it in a way you can still approach the Second Amendment right, which I understand. But we need some common sense conversations because I think this is destroying communities and obviously it's breaking families. I can't even... You know, phantom that if my daughter or my son was murdered at a movie theater or going to a shopping mall, how do you explain that? So I think as, as you know, really concerned humans in our industry, we need to have a broader conversation about it. And I understand the, the mental illness piece of it that needs to be at the table, too. We need to talk about that. 
But we don't, it should not be an either or, or conversation. We can talk about mental illness, but we should be able to talk about gun reform at the same time. And I, I think it's it's a conversation that as DMO leaders, as, as people who are concerned about mankind, we need to have these conversations. And it's really, from a U.S. perspective, we have this issue much more than our international counterparts. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why do we have over 300 mass shootings to date in the United States when our, our friends in the international community have far, far less? So this is a domestic issue. It's a, it's a terrorist issue, quite frankly, that's homegrown that we need to deal with and come up with some solutions. And I believe the DMO community needs to be a part of that because it impacts what we're, the work we're trying to do. Okay. So as the as the top leader of DI, it's obvious you're not afraid to have the tough conversations, be it about racism, women's rights, gun violence. What would you say your proudest accomplishment is? Well, I will answer it this way. The book is unwritten. It's still being written. Um, my, my work is not completed. Um, I would say to you what probably I'm most proud of to date is that after 30 years in this industry of really committing to the industry, both serving on committees, on boards, um, having a voice, I think now more people are listening and willing to listen listen to what I have to say. And so there are people who look like me who work hard in this industry that don't have the voice, don't have the platform, maybe might be afraid to have the voice just because of maybe lack of experience or they work in a community that's very few people of color. I believe what I should be doing now is using my years of experience, uh, my equity that I've built up in this industry to be a voice for the voiceless and to be able to speak out in not a threatening way, but speak out in a, a very uh, inclusive, calm, um, thoughtful way to help people in this industry who not only look like me, but have similar beliefs that now they can say, you know what, because of Al's voice, my job, my position is easier. So I want to create a platform that makes it makes it better for folks behind me and then partner with like-minded people in the industry. So it's not just my voice, but there are other folks' voices in this industry. And to me, that's what I should be doing. That's called leadership, in my opinion, um, because when you ask about what I'm most proud of, I, I want to be, I want to pave the way so this industry is much easier to navigate for the next generation of talent than it was for me. I didn't really have a mentors in this industry. I, I had to learn along the way, which is okay. I'm proud of that. But um, I want to use in my next few years I have left in this industry to really be helpful to the next generation of talent. And uh, hopefully, and it's not, it should not be a, a race issue. We should be paving the way for folks who have good hearts and minds that want to do good 
for other people who have good hearts and minds. Okay. And you said it wasn't easy to navigate the industry. Um, can you, what were some of the biggest obstacles you had to overcome on your way to the top? Uh, you know, um, I, I think for me early on, because I didn't grow up in this industry, you know, most of my colleagues you meet, they worked at the Marriott or the Hyatt, or they worked at another convention and visitors bureau. So they came with some contacts and relationships. When I came in the industry, I knew none of that. I didn't know the lexicon. I didn't have uh, folks in the industry who knew me, who could speak on behalf of Al. So I really started from square zero. I, I had to go out and prove myself. I had to make, I had to connect with folks, um, create relationships. And sometimes you're talking to folks who are not always in your best interest. And so you learn along the way. And I think for me, that was uh, one of my biggest challenges as to who are the folks that I can connect with who would be real with me and be authentic and help me to grow. And those are lessons learned because early on in the industry, everybody in the industry is not for you. Uh -huh. And I don't care if they have president and CEO after their name. They're not for you for whatever reason. And you have to learn that. And so I think that was one of my challenges early on of who can I sort of partner with, who I can support, who can support me. And, um, you know, I think sometimes my, quite frankly, my white counterparts some of them have an easier navigation than I have because of who they are and what they look like. They may be able to advance quicker and they did advance quicker. It took me 26 years to become a president and CEO in this industry. And I have counterparts who got there much quicker than me. And I'm not, I'm not angry about that, but that's reality. And so the question is, why was that? So I think along the way for me, that was part of the navigation that I had to learn of, of uh, what to do and where to be and where to go. And uh, that, that was, for me, my biggest challenge um, in the industry. But the industry has been good to me. Uh, be really honest, I, I've been very fortunate um, to serve this industry well and um, try to help other folks along the way. But uh, the navigation was the really the biggest challenge for me. I mean, it could have been easy for you to say, I'm going to join a different industry. What made you continue to persevere? Well, I think like anything, if you want to be excellent at your art, mm -hmm. you got to fall in love with it. And you have to be very passionate about it. I fell in love with this industry. Okay. But there are very few things I can do, <laughs> to be really, really honest. <laughs> but this, this industry, for whatever reason, was one that once I fell in love with it, this, I felt I could do this. Um, it could do it effectively and do it well. And so for me, I would not know what else to do at this point. And it's... Um, it's one of those deals where I fell in love with it and it gave back to me a hundredfold. And um, I, I, I love the travel and tourism space. I love what it's all about, the, the political navigation, how to make those political connections, the community connections, connection with my peers. Um, it's not all, it's, it's, it's very complicated and very challenging, 
but I embrace that challenge. I love it. I, I love, I love trying to figure out how do I make the next city successful? How do I create the next brand story for a community? How do I hire the next great talented person on our team? I enjoy that. And that might sound crazy, <laughs> but um, I, I really enjoy it. And, and think I, I, I make a little difference. And I know you're a mentor to many. Is there anyone who mentored you in your career or helped you become the type of leader you are? Oh, and congratulations <laughs> on being named the most admired CEO uh, well, in thank Maryland. You. No, thank you so much. Um, yeah, and I, look, I'm, I'm big on leadership. And so I, I study a number of people. Um, a number of them don't know that I'm studying them, but I do. But I would tell you, in my career, there are three people who stand out who really helped me to get to where I am. The first person is Jack Burry, who's still the president and CEO at Richmond Tourism. Um, he hired me, he took a shot on me when I had no experience in this industry. So he's been a dear, dear friend um, to me throughout. Um, the other person is Bob Imperata who took a chance on me in my first management management job at Visit Pittsburgh. And Bob was the executive VP. He hired me. He's, he's since retired, but he hired me uh, to do that job in Pittsburgh. And then Jim Ricketts, who, Andrea, you met, who was the executive director of the, of which is now uh, Visit Virginia Beach. He hired me to be uh, my first VP job, VP of sales and marketing in Virginia Beach. And uh, Jim took a, a chance on me to come there, and that was the very first VP of sales and marketing job at that company or at that organization. And so he uh, he was a good mentor for me and, and really helped me. And, you know, since then, there within the industry, a lot of leaders, and I don't even want to start naming names because I'll leave somebody out, but there are a lot of CEOs now in positions who are great colleagues and friends who've helped me and you know, I have to mention Elliot Ferguson because of Destination DC. He's he's been a, someone that has been so helpful to me during my career, and Melvin Tennant's been helpful to me, and uh, Julie Coker, her her leadership and what she's been able to do. Um, I watch those leaders, and and definitely people, you know, Butch Burden in Nashville, William Pate in Atlanta, Don Welsh. You know, it's just a number of great leaders around the country that I pick up something from all the time to try to incorporate into my leadership to uh, to really be a, a, a better leader. So um, great, great people who really helped me to try to be the best best that I can be. Are there any attributes that you have developed over the years that have helped you as a leader? You know, I think one of the best attributes that I got late, late in my career, I wasn't always like this, <laughs> was listening. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, you, you want to be a leader, you, you know, in my case, I'm very extroverted, type A, want to go, 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 sell, 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 close the next deal. I think sometimes as a leader, we don't take the time to slow down and to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that I've become much better at um, now in my career than I was early on. And I think we do the selective listening. And I think I always try to fight that. And whoever I'm speaking to, 
at that moment, I want to be totally engaged with them and listen to them. And if I'm with a group, I want to be engaged in that conversation. And I think as a leader, that's one thing that uh, I know I continue to work on. I haven't um, mastered that yet, but it's it's one attribute that I think has helped me through my career to be a very um, authentic and sincere listener. Um, and wherever you are, I, and, I, and one of my great leaders, because I'm a big football guy, is Coach Nick Saban um, from Alabama. He always says, be where your feet are. And oh. I'm, I'm really big on that. Wherever you are, that's where you need to be. Be where your feet are. Don't think about the next day, your next job. Be right where you are. That's where your focus wow. should be. And so that's something that I've tried to, to do. And I, I take that, pick that up from him and uh, I keep it with me every day. Oh, that's great. Um, what would be the one thing people would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, maybe a surprise that I was a mommy's boy. Um, <laughs> um, I'm an I'm a only child. My mom had me when she was 17 years old. And she um, dropped out of high school for a couple years to take care of me, went back to high school to get her diploma. Um, but my mom was my best friend. I lost my mom 12 years ago um, due to cancer. Um, but yeah, I'm mommy's boy all the way. She she was she was my uh, she was my hero for what she was able to do and accomplish, you know, having me at a time she had me wasn't probably the the most acceptable thing to do, but she did it. And uh, I'm her investment. That's that's the way I'm not perfect, but I, I was her investment. Um, I did her eulogy um, when she passed. Wow. Um, and that's my girl. That's my girl. And where did you grow up? In Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Wow. That's beautiful. Are there any challenges that keep you up at night? Um, I think now um, we're in such a critical time period with our labor force issues in our communities. You know, due to the pandemic, um, we lost so much talent in the industry. A number of those folks aren't coming back to our industry, they settled in other places. And I think the one thing that I struggle with um, really every day is the labor question, the workforce development question. How do we A, attract new talent, and B, how do we continue to train, motivate, and educate the, the labor we have about the goodness in customer service? Because I think that's an art that we've lost as a as a community and as a people. Um, you don't see exceptional customer service every day. I don't care where you go in this country. You don't see it. But when you do see it, it's like, wow. When someone says, please to you, or, thank you to you, or I'm so glad to see you. Thank you for coming. Please come back. When folks go the extra mile now with service delivery, it almost blows your mind because you don't see it. 
And so I think that's the one piece that I'm hopeful in, in Baltimore that we can create some type of platform to help with that one and create a really great environment of exceptional customer service and begin to put the pride back into the giving spirit. And then if people do that well by serving me, they can elevate themselves and maybe grow their career. I think that's that's an opportunity now for all of us. How do we do that? What does that look like? And can you do it? And I think those of us who are willing to spend some time on creating that are going to be the destinations that win in the future because that that is, to me, a, a missing element in our communities right now of exceptional customer service. And I, I want... I want to be helpful with that one here in Baltimore and try to bring other stakeholders that can help us uh, develop the next generation of customer service talent. And will you do that with training or? Yeah, you know, we're beginning to talk about it internally. Um, we're beginning to look at creating um, some platforms of customer service training, some electronically where folks can go online to learn. We need to begin begin to train the frontline workers again, but we need to also train the, the senior leaders and, and uh, help them with uh, accepting that this is extremely important, And but we need their workers at the table to help us. And what we're hoping to do in Baltimore is create what they did with Disney, the Disney way. We want to sort of look at that, maybe replicate it and create the Baltimore way here in our city. We don't know what that looks like um, yet, but we're beginning to uh, formulate that, put it together, have broader conversations. And I really believe that's a that's a gap that needs to be filled, filled in Baltimore. And, and uh, we're looking forward to it. And I guess it circles back to what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, that if you get your residents vested in the industry, they're going to want to perform customer service at a certain level. Absolutely. And, we, you know, we, we've been we've been struggling with that um, here. We, we were struggling with it a little bit before the pandemic, but the pandemic has really exasperated it. And as I mentioned, we lost the workforce. The travel and tourism space is not really the hot, sexy place for folks to go for a career right now. Some of them are low paying. So we got to change that. We got to get a more of a livable wage. So I think that's part of the conversation. We need to begin to talk about how to create more career pathways, but how do we make our industry more hip and sexy to the Gen Zer who doesn't see it that way? And so, you know, I, I started off in this industry 30 years ago, making $26,000 a year. So, but I fell in love with it. I cut my teeth in it and I was able to grow. And I think we need to begin to put more faces and voices like mine, to allow them to tell their stories to other young folks that there are career opportunities and there are ways to do this. But we have yet to tell that story, I believe, in a very comprehensive, effective way, in a bold way. And so I think if a, a communities can start it, because we connect with our residents, to your point, that now you get into a career, I'm able to take care of my family, buy homes, send my kids to college maybe own a hotel at some point, own a restaurant at some point, 
there are a number of opportunities, but we need to celebrate that more from a career tracking standpoint. And uh, I think that's another huge opportunity for this industry and create that great news story. So we bring in the next generation of talent in the industry. Okay. What do you feel the future holds for the industry? Well, look, I think number one, there are going to be a lot of headwinds. So don't come in here playing softball. You need to be on your A game because the headwinds are real. However, I believe with great leadership, because it all starts with leadership. You have great leadership that's very um, inclusive in their thinking, very flexible in their thinking, can't do it like we used to do it, but be able to be flexible. I believe the future is going to be extremely bright. And the reason it's going to be bright, because if we have that great leadership, very authentic, very inclusive leadership that represents America in top leadership positions, we're we're in an industry where travel folks want to come to communities mm-hmm. and they want to go visit a nice city that has a great history scene, a great food scene, a great sports team or a sports scene. And I think if you have the right leader and leaders in place that can help elevate that story, make it very community focused, then I think the future is going to be bright for us because we're going to go back to traveling. We're going to go to those cities that know what they're doing and that are welcoming. And that's why we created a warm welcome program about a year ago, because if you can create the story that you welcome all people, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, religion, then more people will come see you because they feel comfortable. They feel respected. Mm -hmm. And you have all these great attributes as a community. You're going to hire the best and brightest in, in your community and everybody's going to want to come see you mm-hmm. and visit you for a day or two and then go to the next city that's been able to do it the same way. So I'm excited about the future. I think this is this is now the time to, to get involved, get in, and but you got to do it the right way. And that's what we're attempting to do here in Baltimore. And what are the biggest headwinds to keep your eye on? I think get ready for 2024. <laughs> okay. It, politically, it's it's going to get crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, Roe v. Wade, tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. You know, you got same-sex marriage conversations. You got contraception conversations coming up. See, Supreme Court's already been talking about affirmative action. We'll know more about that in the spring of 2023. And so I think the legislative issues are going to have a lot to do with where we are as a community. Right. So we, have to, we need to be educated to what's happening. Um, and then you got to get ready for, God forbid, all these other health issues out here that could be developing in our in our communities. So we need we need to be ready for that. And we need to begin to continue to talk about, as I mentioned earlier, all the diversity, equity and inclusion conversations. And um, end of the day, I believe, Andrea, our mental wellness is so, so important. We need to invest more in people, training, and our thinking, because that that's a critical issue. The folks we work with, you had so much coming at you, whether it's family, whether it's business, um, personal issues. We need to have a broader conversation in our workplaces about mental. How do you, how do you manage your mentals? And I think we haven't done a, a good enough job in that. And that's one thing for Visit Baltimore, moving into 2023, we're going to be investing 
and more uh, mental wellness conversations with our, with our leadership team. That's great. Well, this was great. Um, the last question is, who would who should we have on our next podcast? Hmm. And if you recommend a few people, that's fine as well. Wow. Um, I, you know, one name just comes to mind to me is, is Julie Coker out in San Diego. Okay. Perfect. Um, you know, the work she did in Philly in the DMO space, she comes from a hotel community and now she moved all the way across the country to California. Her, her voice needs to be heard. She, she does great work, great leader. And, uh, okay, perfect. Important. Well, Al, it's always such a pleasure. Right back at you, my friend. You know, I, I hold you near and dear right here. And the feelings mutual. Well, look forward to seeing you. Um, I'll get with Ari too. We'll talk to you about the event we want to do in New York in the spring. Okay. With James Beard and remind, remind us about you guys meetings too, because I love to plug in. Yeah. yeah. I'll send you all that info. Are you going to PCMA? Absolutely. you be I'll, there. Yeah. All right. Let's get, let's connect. John legend too. I just saw. <laughs> I saw he was at ASAE actually in Columbus. Oh, really? He gave an incredible concert. Oh, good. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. He's from Ohio originally, so that's pretty cool. All right. Awesome. Well, oh, happy holidays to you. Yep. Merry Christmas. Yeah, how's, how's your daughter? Oh, she's doing great. So my daughter, Megan, is in documentary film. She actually, she works with Henry Louis Gates. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. So, and um, my younger daughter actually ended in incentive travel. Oh, very cool. Yeah, very so they're nice. doing well. And how about your kids? They're good. My daughter's hanging tough. Uh, she lives with us in Baltimore. Okay. Um, she was working at the Pendry Hotel. And she's taking a little health break, but she's doing much better. So she's in a good place. And my son uh, graduated from Georgetown, got his master's wow. this past May. And he's working for The Athletic, which is a sports uh, media platform owned by The New York Times. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, Great. So he's doing digital ad work for them, and uh, he loves it. And he lives in D.C., but he's doing well. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah, it's all good. But thank you. Well, a pleasure. And I'll see you in January. So when does this come out? Um, Friday. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Make me famous, will you? You're already famous. <laughs> see ya. Uh, be well. You too. Bye. Bye.